This is an ABC podcast. Coming to you from NARM, that's Melbourne, on the land of the Kulin Nation, this is Life Matters. Hello, I'm Beverly Wang. And what I'm curious about this time is, how much do you think about past relationships? Does it depend on how they ended? Messy and dramatic? Clean and quiet? Or somewhere in between? We're talking it through with a very special literary guest. And in the Too Hard Basket, it's a classic of the genre. Feeling judgmental about someone else's parenting. What to do? Let's talk. We all have those sliding door moments where we wonder what might have been if things had turned out differently with an ex. That wondering might be triggered by a chance meeting. You run into them outside a bar, just for example. At the end of the day, good or bad, these people and relationships have most likely shaped part of who we are today, maybe even influencing how we approach our current relationships. So how important are the memories we carry with us? Or put another way, how tight is the hold of past experiences and relationships on your present relationship? I'd love to get your thoughts on this. How does holding on to past romantic relationships influence how you feel about the one you're in right now? Do we have to let go of the past to move forward, or is it okay to carry those memories with us? Life Matters guest today is someone who spent a lot of time exploring these questions in her fiction. Sloan Crosley is an essayist and New York Times bestselling author, and through her writing, she's been a keen observer of the challenges of modern relationships. And she wrestles with the themes that I've just uh, elucidated above with her latest novel, Cult Classic. Sloane Crosley, welcome to Life Matters. Thank you. Thank you for having me. Oh, it's a pleasure. I wonder what you think of those questions about the impacts of ghosts of past relationships showing themselves, and particularly what spurred you to explore them in the realm of fiction. Um, well, you would think I would have more of an answer. I was listening to those questions thinking, yeah, that is a good question. After <laughs> writing you know, a 300-page novel, you'd think I'd have some insight. But I think it's always this battle um, between not getting sucked into the quicksand of the past, not comparing different people, um, really sort of uh, being in the moment, as they say. Um, and then also, I think I just felt, and part of the reason I wrote the book is it has to count. It all counted in the world, in the words of Joan Didion. And I feel like sometimes when we discredit, let's say, a five-month relationship or, you know, you tell yourself this narrative that, you, you know, your dating life is a mess, et cetera, et cetera, um, it's sort of disrespectful to our own lives, even if you didn't like the person. And, you know, that's what you have, let's say, in replace of a marriage or a divorce or, you know, a long-term 10-year relationship. So I think it is important to maybe not hold on to those people individually, but um, as sort of a prism into your own tastes and your own life. Yeah, no one wants to look back at a period of time and think, well, that time was wasted, because what does that right. say about how you spent your own time? There's value in that, regardless of yes. or you can hope for value in that, I guess, depends on the circumstances. Um, if anybody listening is a fan of Sloane's writing, in addition to cult classics, she's also author of The Clasp and three essay collections, Look Alive Out There. I was told there'd be cake, which is an amazing <laughs> title, Sloane. I love it. Thank you. And how did you get this number? Maybe you have a question for Sloane about her writing or something in the novels, or otherwise, I'd love to hear your stories and reflections about 
how you carry the shadow of past relationships into new ones. I don't necessarily think, like Sloan, that it's all bad. There can be good. All of our experiences make us who we are today. Let's start with cult classic Sloan, and let's start with your protagonist, Lola. She's a smart New York City media type who's forced to wrestle with her past relationships because she's like in some kind of Bermuda Triangle of exes. She keeps on running into them. Tell us a little bit about Lola and the encounters she has with these men. Well, um, first I'll say I do think there's something that happens. This all takes place on the Lower East Side, the novel, um, in close proximity to um, an abandoned synagogue um, that has been essentially turned in the novel, not in real life, um, into an upscale mind control cult by uh, her former boss. Um, And so there's an eternal sunshine kind of bent Mm. to it where um, she is essentially what she presumes at first to be a coincidence that happens in many cities. I just want to, you know, sort of dispel some of the New York snobbery. I mean, I think that, you know, coincidences do happen to my understanding in Minneapolis. Um, But basically... Uh, she is sort of, it's not just a coincidence that she keeps running into these men and she's given this option and she's sort of having doubts about her own um, impending engagement to another man. Um, and she keeps getting sort of stuck, like the past keeps hooking into her. And so basically um, she's given this option that if she steps within a five block radius, pretty much of this abandoned old shul, uh, she will run into an ex. And I feel like it is, a, you know, a bit of speculative fiction, a bit of comedy of manners, but um, I don't know. I feel like um, I would do it. <laughs> <laughs> it's heightened, but I think a lot of people listening can probably relate to, uh, you know, if they live in a city especially and, and frequent certain places, yeah. you can yeah. end up meeting people and really the d- decision to make eye contact or avert a gaze is one that you have to make in a split second in the moment. Uh, and possibly can- walk straight into traffic. Yes, yes, <laughs> yes. Uh, yeah, it can it can be a bit dangerous. Uh, Now, when we talk about encounters with previous partners, whether they're online or in the street, obviously they can throw up a whole range of emotions. By bringing Lola face-to-face with so many ex-partners, what were you wanting that character to confront? Mm. Um, I think I was, you know, our sort of um, journeys, uh, which is such a strange way to um, talk about a character, like they're real, it always sounds a little insane. Um, But Lola's journey and mine were sort of similar in that sense, um, where we discovered together what what the patterns were, you know, um, and what what it was that she was trying to do. And I think it's always really hard, you know, her whole life, she's sort of been trying to balance the very real difficulty of dating in any city um, and these facts and how she specifically is handling it. Mm. Um, You know, not everything can be resolved through a change of outlook or therapy. Sometimes you just win the lottery or you don't. (laughs) Um, And so she's sort of trying to figure out why she keeps on holding on to all the, all these past relationships. Um, And as they build, one of the nice things she realizes is that some of the people that she had either hurt or she thought um, hurt her, she has this immense amount of affection for. So for all her cynicism um, about um, romance and dating, and is there such a thing as closure? And is there such a thing as the one and all those traditional questions? um, She has this sort of um, warmth um, when she looks at them as a sort of pastiche. Right. And, 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 it, helps, and it helps her move on. Yeah, you know? yeah. So there's there's some positivity in there. Do you think that there's anything particularly about the millennial experience that, um, 
I don't know, bring some of these issues more into the foreground than, say, past generations? Probably. So I am, I mean, personally, um, I am, I believe it's called the lucky generation, the the one that's wedged right between X and millennial. Mm-hmm. Um, so we did not uh, grow up with the internet, but we had it in college. I think that's the defining characteristic. And I think that when I see my younger friends, and not that much younger, obviously, um, the sort of proliferation of apps, of um, shopping for people, of dismissing people, um, it might give you a temporary hit of power, um, depending on which direction you swipe, I suppose. Um, but it seems very depressing to to start to view not only your love life, but all of humanity like this. And I think people are given less of a chance, um, you know, and that's and that's sort of tough. Yeah, it is. Uh, I'm For talking. Them. Yeah, <laughs> I'm talking <laughs> with uh, Sloane Crosley, a New York Times bestselling author, uh, uh, author of the novel Cult Classic, among other novels. The other one is called The Clasp. And Sloane's going to be in Australia soon for a whole bunch of different events. And so we're speaking to her ahead of her arrival here. And on Life Matters this morning, we're thrashing out the role our past relationships play in our lives. These are some themes that Sloane traverses in her novel Cult Classic. I'd love to hear your real-life experiences. How do you view your exes? Do you view them with affection? Do you view yourself, your past self, with affection? Do you give, I suppose, do you allow yourself some space and some mercy about uh, how you were like in that relationship? Have you learned from them? Or maybe you've got a question for Sloane because she's a bit of a star in the literary world. I've got a text here from Margaret, and Margaret says, I exited a relationship with a needy and controlling man and had no relationship for 14 years. Then the next one, after knowing the man as a friend at first, was long distance for many years, which worked well for me. And we hear a lot about that um, being together, but also being alone at the same time. There's so many different modes of relationships that we can have. Margaret, thank you so much for texting in. Um, Sloan, I wonder, you know, we talk about that slotting door moment, you know, about imagining what could have been, what we might have uh, gone for if we'd stuck with a relationship. And there's also that moment, I think that's quite interesting in your novel, uh, cult classic, where Lola talks about how with her current partner, her fiancé Boots, they have these rules about how much space they give their exes and how much mm. they can speak about their exes. In fact, they they pretty much say that's not allowed. It's such an interesting phenomenon to think about because there's a lot of, I think, unexpected consequences in that, aren't there? Well, I know, you know, I think what happens is that it, it's more that you just don't want to scratch the surface and see what's behind it because I think that you there's sort of no way to control how an ex blooms in your partner's imagination once you start talking about them. And you might know that they are sort of cordoned off and they only take up a certain percent of the pie chart of your romantic history. But it all sort of, it's like eating a bunch of different food. It all goes to the same place, you know, in their imagination. And so you don't want to hurt the other person. Um, But part of the wonderful thing, if you're with the right partner, is they're also your friend. And it's sort of, there's that impulse to sort of fall backwards into, oh my God, and then this happened. And then that, you know, that person did this insane thing. And you sort of forget that this is somebody who, um, 
you know, might potentially think that you're still wrapped up in it. Um, but I think that for Boots and Lola, I know Boots is sort of a silly name. It's explained in the book. Um, but for the two of them, it's more he doesn't want to know because he's only dated about two people. Yeah. And she has been on this real sort of, um, you know, four to six month married merry-go-round in New York for mm-hmm. about 10 years. Um, and so he doesn't, you know, they just decide that they're going to sort of move into the future together and not discuss it. Um, and it turns out to be a, a ridiculous, ridiculously bad decision. <laughs> well, exactly. Because one part, you know, one half of them is keeping it's like having a, a, a second family or even just a second house you didn't tell your partner about. Yeah, a double life. And the longer you don't talk about yeah. it, the more difficult it is to to share. And it it does the inverse, doesn't it? That it in, in wanting to make hold space for the current relationship, you actually end up these these kind of ghosts, we keep using the, the word, take begin to mm. actually take on more significance because they are the not spoken yes. of, the taboo, which is well, such a yeah. anybody oh sorry, go ahead. Sorry. No, 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 I'm listening to you. <laughs> I was just gonna say that um you know, anybody has the experience and it doesn't even have to be romantic. It could be, you know, a friendship breakup. It could be about your family, about work, uh, about your landlord. I don't know um, where you're making the other person too big. You know, yes. you're just in conversation with them so much. And I think the danger that happens with a lot of people Lola included. Um, and, you know, I say this without being a uh, board certified psychologist. Noted. Um, but noted. Please note. Yes, definitely. <laughs> um, but I, th- I think what happens is, is that you sort of convince yourself that because you've dismissed the person, you feel like you're maybe better than them. You know, you're no longer jealous of them. You, you maybe aren't rooting for them, whatever it is that you've, you've won, um, to put it plainly, you know, but the truth is, is it, Unless your thoughts are neutral or just sort of broadly, well, I mean, I hope they don't get hit by a car. I hope they don't become homeless. Great. I don't care. Um, But if you still have that sort of active negative thing, um, you're just making them massive um, and you're not doing the work of shrinking them down. Um, And so um, I've completely lost my train of thought, but I think I'm actually just regurgitating my therapist (laughs) at this point. That's okay. Uh, We do a lot of of on-air therapy here on Life Matters, so you're right in our (laughs) wheelhouse. Yes, mostly we talk to psychologists and we answer lots of questions. So this is a safe I think they would agree with me. They would just have a little, they would have a better sense of why your childhood informs that than I do. A hundred percent. That's Sloane Crosley. Sloane, I was thinking as you were talking about that, that what also happens is that memory is fallible, isn't it? We start to forget the annoying day-to-day that may have led to the breakup and mm-hmm. the other qualities that 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 X doesn't necessarily remain as the person, but as that almost like a sense memory, uh, good or bad. And it can be a bit of a shock, like for Lola when she encounters it, her exes, to kind of compare her memory of who they are mm-hmm. with the reality of who they are and not just the reality of who they are when they were in the relationship, but what has happened in like the years since. Well, I think one of the bigger things she learns is that just because something ends prematurely doesn't mean it wouldn't end eventually. And I think that takes the sting out of a lot of hurt if you think about it that way, because it accounts for the sort of little irritations and annoyances, um, or even if you're not irritated and it's the reverse and you felt you were always auditioning for someone and you could never be comfortable, that it w- you can't do that for 20 years. It was never going to work. Um, and, you know, I always say, it's not in the book, but, you know, when I'm talking to friends at least, that um, 
there's this sort of membrane of ego around the heart. And sometimes it can be very difficult to tell what took the hit. And I'm not saying that heartbreak isn't extremely real, but sometimes it is the ego. And the other person just saw the writing on the wall first, and they're just a better reader than you are. Mm. <laughs> um, but it doesn't mean you wouldn't have seen it eventually as well. And I think part of what Lola sees um, you know, one of my favorite interactions in the book is she goes back to this restaurant, you know, the second night again and again, that's right near the synagogue I mentioned. Um, and she runs um, into this very sweet sort of all-American athlete that she had dated that moved out of town. And she was always sort of snippy to him, you know, and, and just making sort of snide jokes. At mm. one point, he gets her a notepad that says, like, you've got this. <laughs> and her response is, you know, thanks, I'll write my suicide note on it. You know, she's sort of it she's a dark yes person it's a culture um, clash and she, yeah and she sees him and she apologizes for being so terrible you know she's like well now that i have you in front of me i'm sorry i was kind of a jerk and he goes oh in all sincerity you weren't being a jerk you were just being yourself <laughs> <laughs> what a wonderful backhanded compliment <laughs> yes yeah, so, but but he sort of doesn't mean it it's like no. he gets she she sees herself Properly through all, through the eyes of all these people through the first time and so the first time and really. so significant because it you know the memories that we hang on to that we overthink are not necessarily the things that our exes hang on to they could have seen and interpreted no. them in entirely different ways and you don't and then you kind of feel like oh why did I hang on to that they didn't even they weren't well, even bothered like by it I mean parents tell this story all the time like this sort of horror show of raising children and not knowing if this fight in this terminal of this airport is going to be what they talk about 30 years <laughs> to <now>. their therapist <laughs> exactly <laughs> we've got so many thoughtful texts coming through about their reflections on past relationships and this one comes from sophie sophie says i'm in a relationship with a young family and i think about my past relationships all the time they were all fantastic but so dysfunctional and painful in many ways and they all taught me about who i am and what my trauma is but ultimately my current relationship is the only one where both of us have been truly willing to examine who we we are ourselves and who the other is and work out how to have love for ourselves and each other and our beautiful children are a constant shining light for us both it's not perfect but it's where we are and for that reason i never have regret for what never happened with others what a beautiful thoughtful beautiful. message sophie thank you so much really? for sharing and that line learning how to love the other person but also have love for yourself is so key, isn't it? And I think that keys into some of the themes you explore in cult classic through Lola. What do you think her level of love is for herself as she moves through the story? Oh, wow. Um, I think I wouldn't necessarily use the word love. I have to say that 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 note was that text was so beautiful. It, wasn't I'm like, it? That's exactly how you should We've do got it. the best you listeners should... on Life Matters. Yeah, it's like, you know, warts and all. Um, <laughs> but um, I think that uh, it's it's more. This is a, a strange analogy, but you know Truman Capote once said of Los Angeles, um, and when I say Truman Capote, I could mean Dorothy Parker. We're not sure, but somebody like that said that Los Angeles was seventy-two towns in search of a city. And sometimes when I think of Lola, that's what I think her progression is: is to try to marry all these sort of neighborhoods of her heart, if you'll allow me to be so cheesy, and um, of her past. Um, and sort of just put the puzzle together and figure out 
more about who she is and what she wants. Um, and I don't want to, you know, sort of spoil the ending and the decision she makes. Um, but the question is, is she basically going to be informed by these relationships to decide that the relationship she's in is sort of lackluster Mm -hmm. or is the relationship she's in the secret thing she's been looking for all along or you know it's just or is there one of these men along the way that was always the right one um there is a sort of dickensian um it's a confusion of choice isn't it Yes, of course. I mean, that's and that's the thing. And the problem, you know, the book is also a bit of a send up of technology, because like I said, there's a mind control cult and, you know, a modern one works a lot through Instagram and sort of subliminal messaging and things of this nature. Um, And I think that, you know, she's just sort of we're living in this world where there's this proliferation of choice and you can find apps to design the bathroom tile on the house that you do not own um, that tell you, you know, when to drink, when to eat, you know, how much seaweed, everything. Um, And I think the one of the other main characters in the book, this sort of megalo, excuse me, um, this sort of maniacal um, man named Clive has some good points where he's like, you know, there's apps for everything, but no one helps you make the most important decision of your life. And so that's what he's trying to do. We've got a call in from Croydon in Sydney. Francesca, welcome to Life Matters. What are your thoughts on uh, how we hold on to the memories of our exes as we move through into new relationships? Uh, hi. Um, I just want to say, actually, uh, if I end up uh, a relationship, uh, well, my relationship ended up, uh, it was a five-year uh, relationship and uh, ended up for a sex problem or I thought I had sex problem and uh, I always blame me and, uh, you know, uh, will take the fault all the time. Um, then I decided to go to therapy and, uh, um, yeah, I just... Fixed, and how has uh, that helped you shift your thinking about uh, laying blame in a relationship, Francesco, or, or, or how you allocate responsibility? Yeah, um... I thought it was always my fault, you know, mm-hmm. always blame myself. And uh, at the end, uh, during therapy, I realized that I didn't do anything wrong. It was just uh, society and uh, my family, uh, because they were, uh, you know, Catholic Christian, shaming sex. And I discovered mm-hmm. that all my problem came from uh, shame. And uh, going to therapy, yeah, um, I fixed all of that. It took a while, but, you know, um, it, it's much better. I just want to say to people, because there are a lot of people that uh, they are afraid to go to, to therapy because uh, they they are ashamed to to be called crazy or uh, you know oh, I don't have mental health I don't need therapy but therapy is not just for problems uh, like mental health it is also to uh, have a better quality of life it doesn't matter if you have mental issues or if you're depressed or not. You can just have a better quality of life with uh, therapy. That's such a positive story, Francesco. Thank you. And how do you feel like going to therapy and working through those issues and making those connections has helped you as you uh, look for new uh, connections with other people? Uh, yes, uh, it helped me a lot because now I know uh, um, I'm not rushing into a relationship like I used to do before. Um you know, just to uh, to get a quick fix. I'm working on myself, and uh, I know what I want, and uh, I'm not uh, just blind myself up uh, to get whatever uh, is there just because I want something. 
Fantastic. Thank you so much for calling in and sharing. It's not easy to talk about your past relationships on live radio, so we really do appreciate mm. your call, Francesca. <laughs> Sloan Crosley, New York Times bestselling author, is also listening in. And uh, so a few of your texts coming in, I'll just read them now. Some people seem to be able to go from one relationship to another. Me, it's often up to 15 years between, and it's now 15. And it's 15 now. I'm 74, so another relationship is unlikely. I gotcha. So I'm left with the ghosts of past relationships. The man I call my main ex, a seven-year relationship from 22 to 29, keeps popping up. I have conversations with him. I left him. He'd worn me out, turned me into a person I didn't like. But I can't help wondering if I'd had more patience, had the child that lurked in our shadows... um, and I'm unable to read the rest of it, but I can see, actually, Sloan, that almost sounds like a premise for a novel. It's a, it's a kind of a, mm-hmm. a lovely thing to write in, and, and not that it's uh, lovely that you're not in a rela- relationship if you don't want it. That's not what I mean to the texture, but to kind of be able to return to past relationships and forge a new relationship with them and keep that going so many years later, that's quite extraordinary, isn't it, Sloan? It it really is. I mean, when you said it, it sounds like the plot of a novel, not to plug someone else's here, but it sounds like the plot of The Evening by Susan Minot. I don't know if you've ever read it, but it's this sort of woman who sort of can't let go of in the novel. It's like one specific night with a man she felt that she was supposed to be with. Um, and she hangs on to it uh, on her deathbed and starts talking about this man that her children have never heard of, you know, that her husband had never mentioned, you know, and it's just... Um, I think it's just, again, it's all about sort of um, respecting um, your own past um, and knowing that even if, you know, this gentleman thinks that he won't date anyone again, it doesn't mean, you know, we're sort of fed this stuff about, okay, you have to, these images of somebody just holding your hand until the very end and um, and being with you until the very end. And again, it's I think at any stage of life, um, it doesn't have to you don't need consistency to have a wonderful rich romantic past no that's right that's absolutely true um calling in is maham in sydney welcome to life matters what have you learned from past relationships thank you beverly so for me it's i in every relationship that i've entered into i've taken the beautiful memories from my past um, love interests or partners and I've actually used that to carry me through every single relationship but it wasn't an easy thing to do it wasn't an easy realization it actually took a lot of courage because I was under that belief that when that when a relationship ends you have to let go of all the memories and mm. letting go was actually the hardest part and what I've come to realize is that life and love is a continuous letting go of and it actually takes me back to a question that Carrie Bradshaw asks in Sex in the City. Yes, go on. Where does, all, where does the love go? When yeah. the relationship ends, where does love go? And I think it just stays inside of you. You have to carve out a little place inside of you and it just stays there. And you have to honour the relationship that you had with your ex and it just stays inside of you. It doesn't, I don't know. I, I still ask myself to this day when I'm having a really tough one, mm-hmm. but it, it, it's still inside of me. That's so profound, Maham, that, that you're able to think about what sometimes I'm sure may have been difficult endings of mm-hmm. relationships, and you've been able to turn it into this this beautiful, sustaining jewel for yourself that you hang on to. And also often when we think about breakups, we think about disaster, 
failure, all of those negative things. And it seems so profound that you've been able to turn that around. What is What was the turning point for you? What was that moment where you were able to shift and actually mine that gold from the past? I think for me, it was actually the last relationship that I was in. The person was... Um, the person that I was with, I thought I was going to be with them forever. And it's that Disney belief, right? And when that relationship ended, the words that you just mentioned, cat, you know, catastrophe, failure, loss. And, and I think for me, it was, okay, well, I can't argue with reality anymore. I have to use this really painful breakup and I have to move through life now. And I think that last relationship was the turning point. I can't say that for every relationship, but maybe we experience that one relationship or we, we're with that one person who, who kind of is the catalyst for that. So I think that's what I would put it down to. Thank you so much for calling in. That's really, I mean, Sloan Crosley, don't we have amazing callers? That seems like everybody's I, got this that. philosophy of life and love. <laughs> I just kept thinking when, when she was talking, um, I just kept thinking... I've just lost a customer. This woman doesn't need to read the book. She's got it. We're good. <laughs> She's unlocked the secret. She knows Carrie Bradshaw's answer about where, where the love goes. Where was she when I was writing? <laughs> if you want to call in and chat with us, uh, Sloan Crosley's on the line with me from New York City. Someone's texted in and kind of keyed into this idea of a generational difference in dating. And the texter says, millennials and their generations near. So I'm thinking the lucky generation or below. I know. I love that name. I've actually never heard of that, Sloan. So I'm going to keep oh, that. Not, I'm, I didn't make it up. I'm, I'm the same that. generation as you so I like to know oh, that wonderful. we're lucky and not forgotten which is what mm-hmm. we usually are right mm-hmm. uh, but to go on with the text um, I'll start from the beginning Millennials and those generations near are both drivers and defenders of acceptance of difference ie through gender identity and sexuality this seems to have bled into romantic relationships and as a mother of a young adult it seems that condemnation even deserved of an ex is seen as a character flaw some exes might just suck as people and I think it's okay to say this what do you think Sloan? <laughs> yeah, I mean, I think that um, I think that's a life truth and would make a very short novel. <laughs> so, <laughs> yes, some people, um, you know, an expression here is I don't know if it's everywhere, but you can't fight City Hall. You know, it's just it's just this is this person. Um, maybe I think what's always confounding to me is hmm, there's this I, I, without being too gross and just sort of um, quoting my own novel, but um, there's a sort of speech um, that Lola gives to a friend of hers about halfway through the book where she really cracks because everybody's asking these questions of her very similar to the kinds of questions that you're asking and, and your callers are as well. Um, and she's just like, you know, I don't, what am I supposed to do? I'm, you know, this is what I've been dealt. I'm just trying to make things even. And it's so unfair because, you know, people go and they have a breakup and they talk to their friends and their therapists about how terrible that person was. And somewhere across town, that person's therapist and friends are saying that they made such a great decision to sort of set you loose because it wasn't healthy. So it's like, what's true? <laughs> um, but I feel like, uh, of course, there are people that, um, you know, I don't know if there are like actual bad seeds out there, but there are people that like maybe aren't relationship people that you were trying to make into something that they're not. Right. Okay. I, I, I like that. Let's go to another call from Gwilym in Eltham, New South Wales. Welcome to Life Matters, Gwilym. What are your thoughts on hanging on to the memories of exes as you move forward in life? Uh, 
Well, it's a huge thing. It's a massive thing for me because I was married for 18 years and um, along came... Look, it, it was for a long time I wanted to leave and, and I had two young children and uh, so I didn't leave and I, I felt like I often just pushed things down and pushed, pushed my own desires down many times. But the point about it is when I had my midlife crisis, as it were, and I left... It really propelled me forward. I was so hungry for change and to get away from that, um, which was just stifling, and um, to move forward. I, I, I went to five gurus. I ended up in a cult in America. Oh. Um, and uh, but this was a long time ago. But, um, you know, it just propelled me on a pathway where I, I recognised uh, things about myself. How interesting and that there's resonance with um, your book, Cult Classic Sloan Crosley, about mm -hmm. exes, relationships, and and you know getting pulled into these these cults. Uh, I guess mm -hmm. sometimes it's not healthy to hang on to past relationships and thoughts, and it is necessary to move forward and and keep going. Not every relationship, perhaps you know, we've had some, some wonderful texts where people have been able and calls where people have been able to find find that 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 treasure from from the loss but uh you know it's not for everyone and we have to recognize that we've got a message from fiona who says it's really important we honor the grief when we leave a relationship it took me 20 years to grieve a beautiful relationship there's always so much learning to be done and that crystallizes beautifully doesn't it sloan crosley that grief is is part of the process and we can't shut that out. It's it's really important to give space to those feelings. I also feel like the the word learning is really interesting. And it's sort of um what the past two people have chimed in sort of have in common. Um whether it's, you know, it's just you should be um hopefully unconsciously just because you take joy in life, um, mining your experiences so that they're not all just um this sort of shapeless mush. Um, which isn't to say that everything has to have a neat little lesson and um tied up at the ends like a piece of candy. But it's it's the most fundamental thing, right? I mean, if I if I trip and I stub my toe on a chair, I would probably move the chair. <laughs> yeah. I wouldn't just keep kicking the chair. And so I feel like why aren't we like this? Um, and recognizing patterns like this um, within, you know, our own relationships and, and recognizing those patterns maybe means I've moved forward. I never want to do it again. And sometimes it's, um, you know, I feel like I've personally learned something from every relationship I've ever had. Um, and sometimes that lesson is what you want. And sometimes that lesson is what you don't want. Um, but the big sort of thrust of the book is that um, there's not this sort of perfect person um necessarily waiting for you um but there is a way in which of course you two are perfect together if you will yeah and ultimately perhaps it's not the search for the other person but if i if i dare go there here on life matters i think mm -hmm. i'm in safe space <laughs> but it's doing the work on yourself isn't it sloan crosley it is i mean it's about the friends we made along the way no i mean i really <laughs> I, I, I know it all sounds i mean this is the problem is that you know in I generally have avoided writing about romance my entire life. Um, there's like one essay in a hundred. Because the truths are so fundamental and it's such a m massive topic. Um, 
that you really have to find your own sort of interesting angle in. So if I were to write about, let's say, like the Civil War tomorrow, I don't I mean, this is a well-trodden subject, right? I mean, I guess I could write about like Lincoln's hats. You know, I have no idea how I would get in in a way that's specific to me. Um, and I feel like I have done with cult classic. I don't I don't know. Um, I'm not going to reinvent the wheel. I'm not Shakespeare. But just the problem is, is twofold. One is that all of this stuff whittles down to the sort of um, cliche for a reason. You know, it's hard to talk about this without sort of um, reducing myself from sort of a, an author into a, like an after school special or like a <laughs> lifetime or Hallmark movie, you know, because there are certain fundamental truths that, you know, pierce through Hallmark, that pierce through Anna Karenina, they're the same things. Mm. Um, and then the other reason is I personally um, had this sort of aversion to being pigeonholed um, as an author who writes about dating. That can be um, not so great for one's career, frankly. Right. I hear you. Um, we've yeah. got a text here that says, I'm still friends with most of my exes, and many of them are now actually friends with each other. I figure there's wow. always, I know, wow. <laughs> I figure there's always something special about that person for me to have been in a relationship in the first place. So why throw out the baby with the bathwater? I love that. That's a that's like that peak too. level ex-friendshipping when your exes are friends with each other and everybody's cool with it. Very, very adult, very, very mature. Uh, Sloan, just to pivot a little bit, there's a question coming in from a, a, a listener who is a fan of yours. I've got a question off topic, the texter writes. I was wondering what is Sloan's writing routine? Does she start early in the day, go late at night? How does she tackle pumping out so many great books? Thanks. Wow. Well, yeah. there's a lovely compliment embedded in there. So thank you very much. Um, basically, I leave the house, hope to run into an ex-boyfriend, see what happens. No, <laughs> <laughs> uh, no I feel like I am very motivated by um, fear and <laughs> stress. Aren't we all? Love it. Yeah, exactly. I mean, it's always better to be motivated by something positive. But, you know, if you're running towards or running from, sometimes you'll get to the same place. Um, so, um, I tend to wake up and write when I'm fresh. Um, and then I sort of hit a wall in the afternoon. Um, and everybody does it. I don't even think you need to be a writer with any job. You know, when you're sort of slowing down, you pump out two sentences and then, and then you're like, Oh, I need a cookie. <laughs> you know, I just, I just, and you're like, well, this is not exactly, um, flowing as it were. Um, and then I tend to read, um, hopefully in the evenings or the afternoons. But, um, I think, you know, for my first three books, um, or, yeah, the first two were collections of essays, um, but not collected from it. It's not like I swept them into a dustbin. They were written, you know, original for those, for I was told there'd be cake and for how did you get this number. Um, and I had a day job during that time. Um, and so there was a real, um, you know, the adage, if you want something done, give it to the busiest person in the office. Yeah, I felt like I could write essays like that. Um, but when I finally quit, I quit to write a novel because I felt like the novel actually required more immersion than I was going to get from having a full-time career. Well, there you if go. That no, that I'm sure that helps. And it's a sneak peek of what you will be talking about when you arrive on Australian shores. Sloane Crosley, thank you so much for joining us on Life Matters this morning. Sloane Crosley is an essayist and novelist. Her latest book, Cult Classic, is out now. And if you'd like to hear more from Sloane, she will be appearing at Adelaide Writers Week on March 7th and 8th, the Wheeler Centre in Melbourne on March 9th, and the All About Women Festival at the Sydney Opera 
House on the 12th of March. One more text here about exes and relationships. The texter says, I have a level of unspoken etiquette that I show my partners when it comes to exes. I believe it's a good balance of respectful to my partner and honest to me and my past. What's scary is finding out your current partner doesn't show you the same etiquette. Indeed, perhaps that is a too hard basket dilemma in the making, which is where we are going next. When you move, you tell everyone your new address. Even if it's just next door. That's what we're doing on RN. The health report has moved next door. It's now on at 6pm on Monday instead of 5.30. Same with the law report on Tuesday. The religion and ethics report on Wednesday. The money on Thursday. And download this show on Friday. The same specialist shows at a new address, 6 o'clock. Or catch them anytime on the ABC Listen app. Got an issue you just can't fix? On the fence about what direction you should take? Been wrestling with a situation that's out of control? Let's take it out of the too too hard basket. All right, this dilemma comes from my favourite genre of problem. It's a second-hand problem. Something that has been observed and that our correspondent has feelings about and needs helping sort through. Specifically, it's about having thoughts and concerns about someone else's parenting. Delicious. Let's sink our teeth into this one with our two hard basketeers. Welcome again to Anna Akia and Rowan Barwick. Before we get into the detail, let me take your temperature. Rowan, Mm. straight from the gut. Give it to me short and sweet. (laughs) What were the two or three words that sprang to mind when I said this dilemma was having a problem with somebody else's parenting? Well, I think it's very, very tricky and you're entering into some very, very dangerous territory if you start looking at somebody else's parenting. But that said, um, we've all been a kid at some point, so we all know what it's like to be a kid or a parent, so we all take sort of different advice with us along the way. Well, we've got our high vis on, so we're just proceeding with caution here. (laughs) Anna, what about you? Briefly, what sprang to mind when I said this was the topic? About 40 million opinions, <laughs> but chief amongst them being, oh, my God, yes. this is very dangerous territory. Yeah, yeah. Caution, caution. All the lights are flashing. Mm-hmm. All right. So let's all venture carefully together, hands together. Here we go. Beck <laughs> writes, I have a few long-term friends who now have adult children. I myself never had kids. They've been great parents, and now their three kids, in quotes, are in their 20s. One is living at home, the other two live in a unit which their parents helped them buy in a nearby nearby suburb. When one of them was offered a full-time job in a lovely regional town, their parent persuaded them not to take it. Another did move to work in the regions and ran into some difficulty. The parent's response was to help them to quit and move home. One of the adult children works at the firm where one one parent also works. It's a big mental map here, everybody. A lot of diagrams. The parent also helped them to get the job under their management. It's a job, but not a career and doesn't use the person's academic qualifications. To me, these behaviors seem to be undermining the young adults, their careers and lives. I'm finding this overprotection of adult offspring depressing. I believe it is not good for the parents and not good for the, the, quotes kids either. Should I say something? Ooh, ah, I hear you say. I hear you. I hear everybody sucking their teeth there. Anna, 
let's start with you because you've got 40 million opinions and we've only got 10 minutes. <laughs> is it understandable that a long-term friend would have a view on how their friends are parenting their adult children? Of course, everybody has a view on how people parent their children. But the, the trick here is to not express that view. <laughs> you can judge all you like, but you keep your mouth shut, especially, I would say, especially here, dangerous territory if you're a childless woman yourself. So there's a lot of stigma attached to being a childless woman. I am one. And I really wanted children, but nobody ever asks me. I just discover through the course of banal conversations that people have made mad assumptions about me. Like they'll say, oh, I know you hate children. Right. So how do you know that? Do I? Or I'm so glad you're coming to the party, but just so you know, there are going to be children there. Or, you know, obviously you chose your career. I've been called a selfish career wow. woman, all of these things. Like there's um, nobody ever asks me, but everybody assumes, you know, busy mums are jealous of my freedom. Oh, well, you made the right choice, you know, choosing yourself. Like really weird things. Like so yeah. I, w I would say especially if you don't have children, I mean, parent to parent, you can have conversations, but if you don't have children, the, the slightest comment, even me, unbidden, I don't say anything. Yeah. People will, like, once you scratch that, it will unearth a pen. So you're saying that, that because, as Beck has already pointed out, that her, her child free status will come into question. That's so interesting to me because Should Rowan. Should we run out of town with pitchforks? Well, <laughs> I hope, I surely hope not. I hope that Beck is safe and can keep listening to Life Matters and writing in. Um, that, I think that's so interesting to hear from you, and I don't want to dispute that at all. That's your experience. But the fact of the matter is that parents also judge each other, don't they, Rowan? So I actually yeah. think Beck should be free to be judgmental. We are all free <laughs> to be judgmental, as you rightly point out, Anna, in our heads. Well, I think that's true, but I, I also th I, do, I disagree slightly with Anna because I think that if we're talking about a long-term friend, then actually there might be a little space that um, she can go into here where she might be able to say something, and it could just be a little bit of curiosity from the friend's part here. She can probe just a little. She can she can say something along the lines of, and are the kids all okay? I mean, the kids have the kids are really still sort of living at home, aren't they? I mean, are they all okay with that? Did anybody want to leave? The city? Did they want to move overseas? Did they want to pursue their own sort of lines of careers? I think that she can question this. I don't think she can come in with her judgments and say, well, I really don't think this is how things should be um, because nobody wants to hear that. But I think as a friend, and especially as I said, long term, uh, that does give you a certain amount of, uh, you know, history there and maybe a little bit of space to be able to just probe ever so gently. An exploratory conversation. People love That's talking about their kids. So you can ask, you know, how they're going and all sorts of things like that. Absolutely. And of course, we have to factor in the reality, which is people in their 20s are staying home longer. This is a statistical truth that we're hearing in the news at the moment. Yeah, that's, that's right. absolute, you absolutely know, true. Oh, sorry, Rowan. Go ahead. There you go ahead. We're all so polite. Say, go ahead, you know, Anna. <laughs> sorry, sorry. We are so polite. I was going to say, you know, I think um, the assumption here is that, you know, perhaps coddling your children a bit or, you know, rescuing them at every turn or, or you know, that, that coddling or privileging children in this way, you know, or young adults is going to hamper them in some way. But I, as a graduate and a, alumni of the School of Hard Knocks, who has worked for everything, my first furniture was two milk crates and a mattress from Hard Rubbish. Yeah. I, <laughs> I am full of uh, pride and achievement of everything I've, I've managed to achieve, everything I have, I, I've earned for myself. But I tell you what, it's very scary and I wouldn't recommend it. You know, people who are coddled and privileged and 
handed everything are thriving. Look at them. And I think the, the <laughs> they're not suffering, are they? It doesn't, build, yes. it doesn't build character. But you know what? Character won't rescue you from the brink of disaster. Character doesn't pay <laughs> the mortgage. Overrated. And I think it's overrated. And I think it's probably an old fashioned view. I mean, I don't think character yeah, is, there is, this is something view. that you require to thrive in a modern society. Look at the Kardashians and Instagram influencers. These people are thriving. Yeah, I don't. I think this Zero idea character. that character is built through hardship is one that we need to think a little bit harder about, perhaps. Mm. That, I think it's very old-fashioned. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So I feel like Beck's issue here is that it's bothering her a lot. I think this is a definition of having something live in your mind rent-free. Yeah. You know, where it's yeah. okay to be judgmental, but what I'm concerned about is that it seems to bother Beck to the point that she wants to say something or do something. She's very vexed by it. There's such a variety of views on the Facebook page. Let me just share a few. Some people are saying... Uh, Nicole said, uh, I raised my kids as a single parent and my friends often told me things I couldn't see myself. They're very close friends, often childless, but some had kids. I found their various inputs very useful. If you can suggest your opinion lovingly, I say go for it. I would love to hear what our basketeers think. Is there a way to open that conversation lovingly? Rowan, you suggested that it's indirect kind of exploratory. What about Absolutely. you, Anna? Do you have any thoughts on how to have a loving, a lovingly expressed opinion to a longtime friend about how they parent their adult children? Firstly, I'd, I, I would tell our correspondent to question why she has this opinion. You know, like, why, why does it bother her so much? Um, and then, but also I think, you know, I mean, there can be gentle conversations. Definitely, you know, if the parents are saying they're worried about my family or whoever, then, you know, then you can discuss that in a, in a conversation or perhaps, you know, you could also, if she's spending time with these girls, perhaps influence them to be a, you know, inspire them to be a bit more rebellious or take a few more chances or, you know, whatever. But I, I, I would say tread very carefully and firstly question why it bothers you so much before you open the door to the conversation. Yeah, that's very that's very wise. Rowan, uh, one thing that Beck raises in her letter is that one of the children is working a job but not a career and doesn't use the person's academic qualifications. What kind of what are your thoughts when you see that expressed as a concern? Look, I think that's a valid concern, but I think that in the case of this one, she, maybe she doesn't know the full story. Maybe this person, you know, has some high anxiety that they're dealing with and they don't necessarily want to be, um, you know, pursuing a career that um, they have to work, you know, 20 hours a day. They actually just want to be doing something that's a little bit lighter, that's possibly a little bit easier. And I think in this conversation as well, you know, our friend who's watching on and seeing all of this uh, uh, play out, maybe this family just really loves spending time together and maybe they all just want to live close to each other and maybe they all want to work together. And if that's the case, then that's a great thing. If they're a family that gets on well, they complement each other at work, that's all fabulous. So I think it's okay for our letter writer to, as I said, just probe with some curiosity about whether actually everybody's happy in this situation. Um, but maybe it's just working out for them and that's if it is, then that's fabulous. There might be some all, all lots of other issues at play that she doesn't know about that are going on behind the scenes um, and and if the everybody's happy then that's good Anna how do you see these behaviors I mean there's a th an idea that they're the behaviors undermining the children's career and lives Anna final word to you what do you think well 
I don't think so. I think I, I, I think you can't say that that's necessarily going to turn out to be true. If, if these girls have a safety net, they're probably going to be more confident in life to take risks and challenges because they know they have a safety net, that they've got their parents to support them and help them when things go wrong. Like, I think actually it might go the other way. And also, I think, you know, when people are in their 20s, who's living their dream in their 20s? Most people in their 20s are figuring stuff out, trying a bunch of different jobs, you know, seeing what fits. Um, you know, in my 20s, I did 10 different things and, until I worked out what where I wanted to go. And that didn't really happen until my late 20s. So I wouldn't I wouldn't worry too much. And I'd say probably having a safety net, these girls are going to be okay. They'll probably end up being <laughs> politicians or something. <laughs> uh, who among us uh, still works in the field that we studied, you know, academically? I have a, a degree in cinema studies or something like that. I can't even remember, but I'm not working in the cinema, am I? Certainly not. <laughs> um you know, Beck is coming from a good place, and and there is a bit of critique about thinking about somebody else's problems too much. So I wonder, Rowan, if you can help Beck uh, let, have this problem live less rent free in her mind. What would you say? Well, I hope that maybe by um, writing to the too hard basket, she's got a little bit off her chest, and maybe that'll um, alleviate the um, the itch that the scratch that she be, she's been wanting to itch all the other way around. Um, I think that obviously it is playing on her mind, um, and she probably does need to do something about it. But it's just about how she does it, um, and and the context in which she does it, and how gently she does it, and lovingly. But she's got that long history with the family. She's she goes way back, and those are the friends who you know it's okay to have those deeper. Harder conversations, even if they're done in a you know curious and loving way, it is possible to have those, and often relationships just improve as a result of them. Thank you so much, and beware the pitchforks. Yes, beware, yeah, beware. the pitchforks. Indeed, stay That's safe the main, out there. That's the main takeaway. Thanks so much to our wonderful and wise two hard basketeers this week, Anna Akia, founder of Anna's Go Go Academy, and Rowan Barwick, presenter at ABC Alice Springs, and lots of conversation on the Radio National Facebook page on this two hard basket dilemma. Adam is on Beck's side. He writes, Hey, Beck, I'm with you. It's called dependency, and it's not healthy. The parent won't cut the apron strings, and the kids, well, every situation is different, but it's an easy ride for the kids, so they go along. Jane writes, Not being a parent does not mean your thoughts are invalid and shouldn't be a barrier to being a good friend. Unless your friends are in distress or talking about the situation with their children, there's nothing for you to do. If you have a relationship with any of the children independent of the parents, then there's other conversations you can have with them. Otherwise, it's best left where it is. Go well. And Lisa writes, helping your adult children is meeting the needs of the parents. It's not helping. It's not parenting. It's using adult children to serve a purpose. However, despite expressing that opinion, Lisa says... Don't mention anything. Their identity is so caught up in parenting, they won't hear your message. Stay silent, watch, and just feel slightly sorry for them. Now it's time for me to get out of here. Thanks so much for all of your calls and messages. I always love to know what's on your mind. And remember, you can always catch up to all of Life Matters stories on the ABC Listen app. Big thanks to Life Matters producers, the ones who make this show run day after day. Beck Zajac, Michelle Weeks, Tracy Tromph, Nat Tenchich, Lisa Needham, and Lyndall Rollins. Life Matters executive producer is Angela Owens. The sound engineers for this episode were Carrie Dell and Emma Hart. I'm Beverly Wang, and let's talk again next week. Bye. You've been listening to an ABC podcast. 
Discover more great ABC podcasts, live radio and exclusives on the ABC Listen app.